Um, hey, if you're still standing in your living room with your hands raised high, you may grab a seat and please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 23 will be our primary text today. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 23. As we continue looking at this really important letter. Um, And as a reminder, one of the reasons we're going through Romans the way that we are is we believe that ultimately the first community that would have had this letter from Paul would have likely read it immediately when they got it. Uh, from beginning to end, so all 16 chapters, and then likely, as I hope that, that we're doing, going slowly back through it to have a deeper consideration of all that the apostle had in mind when thinking about first century Christians there in Rome. And so as we continue to do this, we pray that the Lord does what he always does, which is um, never returns his word void. It always accomplishes what he sets it out to do. Um, and so I trust that this continues to be a, a helpful time in God's word together. Romans chapter 8, Verses 19 through 23 will be our text. And to to begin with today, I'd like to talk about the Christian imagination. And the Christian imagination is not about conceiving of something that isn't real, but it's actually the opposite. Uh, It's rather about conceiving realities which are beyond our comprehension, which are beyond our world and experience. It's about together as God's people nurturing, let's put it this way, the true and beautiful vision of God and his world and his plan for this world. So think about it. This is why imagery and dreams and metaphors and poetry are used throughout the scriptures. What we learned through the composition of the Bible is that all that is to be known about God cannot be bound within logic and prose and facts and data. That means when we open the Bible, we should not simply be saying, what do I have to learn, but also what do I have to behold? What am I being asked to gaze at, to reflect upon, or to even imagine? This is why the writer, great writer C.S. Lewis said, reason is the natural order of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. The organ of meaning. See, we need imagination. And I believe that's precisely why God gave us the ability to imagine so that we could know him better. The Apostle Paul actually prayed for the imagination of the early Christians in Ephesus when he wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope of which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Imagination helps us to see with our hearts what we cannot with our eyes. Some of us may think that's wonderful. Others of us, that may make us nervous. But our imagination as followers of Jesus is meant to give eyes to our hearts where to see something, rather, to experience something that is beyond the scope of our vision. But you see, the thing about a Christian imagination, or any imagination, really, is that it is only as helpful as it is true. The Christian imagination is only as helpful as it is true. Imagination can only be really... Um, encouraging and hopeful to us if it is based on reality. That means that no matter how comforting or how nice or how much a particular thing to imagine makes us feel, particularly as it relates to God, if it's not true, it's ultimately not helpful, it's not good, it's not beautiful. To that end, I think it's easy to let our imagination get shaped by the prevailing culture, the prevailing tides or winds of a particular cultural moment and not by God's word. 
I find this to be particularly true when it comes to the nature of our discussion today about how we imagine heaven, how we imagine eternal life. See, in our cultural moment in the West, when we think about heaven, we think about eternity in a few distinct ways. And I think a few things perhaps come to mind. Heaven, we conceive, is up there, or at least far away from here. Heaven is strictly spiritual in many of our collective imaginations, and heaven is about what the future holds, not what's happening right now. But, but here's the question for us today as we reflect upon that imagination or that idea of forever, that idea of eternity, that idea of eternal life and of heaven. Where did we get that idea? Where did we get the idea? How did we conceive in our imaginations of heaven as something that's up or away or in the future or merely spiritual? And I've fallen prey to these images and these ideas just as much as anyone. But these I'd like to suggest to you and walk through this text today do not hold water when it comes to Scripture, when held next to Scripture. Just like in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul has been talking about inheritance, the inheritance of God's people, of, of the Father's children in Romans. And he uses the language of heirs and glory. We are heirs of an inheritance in verse 17. We will be glorified and glory will be revealed to us in verse 18. So what specifically is our inheritance to which we are heirs? What does Paul have in mind when he talks about glory? Is it heaven? Is it a future spiritual and distant eternity which waits for those who are in Christ? Well, I'd like to suggest to you that when that comes to our mind or that concept of glory is the result of faulty religious imaginations, of a faulty and broken view of the world, something that is not inherited from Scripture, but inherited from the prevailing culture. And our text today, I think, goes a long way in addressing and correcting each of these aspects of this Christian imagination, which has been shaped by when and where we live, not about God's Word with respect to our inheritance as God's family. And I think it goes about a roundabout way to do that. So you've got to stay with me a little bit as we go on some relevant excursions, if you will, from this text. But here's Romans chapter 8, verse 19 through 23. Paul writes this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. See, creation as a whole, Paul says, not just humanity, seems to be experiencing and expecting something. Something which is directly connected, as a result of verse 18, directly connected with our Christian inheritance, with glory, with resurrection, with eternity. So let's talk about eternity today. Let's consider a few things from this text about eternity in hopes, uh, I, I hope, and, and prayerfully, that we would nurture an accurate imagination, that we would cultivate right visions of what heaven, what eternity is, in, in, in other words, what, that we would see appropriately with our hearts what we cannot see with our eyes. Let's talk about the nature of eternity, the location of eternity, and the timing of eternity. So the nature, location, and timing of eternity. Let's ask for God's help before we do so. Heavenly Father, help us. 
Help us as we come to your word, a tedious and important text, to understand what's true. Correct false thinking. Reshape our imagination that has been built upon things that, that don't last, that James says are, are demonic and, and fleeting and not helpful. Help us to be built and anchored in the wisdom that is from above. Wisdom that's from you. I know when we discuss things like heaven, Father, it's not just a concept. We talk about eternity and the age to come. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiousness and anxiety. There are our loved ones who have shaped us, who have loved us, who are no longer with us, whose fate and experience we are about to contemplate. And so this is not an idea for many of us. This is about people, people that we've loved. And so, Father, we don't move forward without wanting to come to you and just ask for humility and trust. Help us to trust you. Help us to believe that your vision and the way that you have constructed eternity is better than whatever we have come up with. And help us to understand a bit more of why it's so good. Help us to trust you in that. Help me to trust you in that. It's to that end I desire to be available. I pray that you would think with my mind, speak with my mouth, and even incarnate within my whole body the truth and beauty of your gospel today, that we as a church scattered throughout the city today would be encouraged by your word, would be instructed, corrected, comforted by your word for your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Amen. When we look back on this particular passage in Romans chapter 8, creation takes center stage, if you notice. Look, look back through it quickly, Romans 8, 19 through 23, for the creation waits, then creation was subject to futility, and then in hope that creation will be set free, and then finally the whole creation has been groaning. Uh, notice Paul is using his imagination. In doing so, he cultivates our collective imagination. And how does he do this? Well, notice the language. Creation is waiting. Creation is hurting. Creation is hoping. Creation is groaning. Paul uses personification or what some call anthropomorphism, right? There's our, you know, dollar word for the day. He is imagining and he imagines something which is not human through human language. It's a literary device. And we, we shouldn't do what some have done with this language and presume that Paul is telling us that creation is a living and independent being with a soul. We hear this commonly described, the different cultures and ideas when we call creation Mother Nature or something like this. But we should also be very careful as many more modern thinkers or readers of the Bible simply dismiss this as illustrative language. See, Paul is talking about what's called the subpersonal creation. Subpersonal creation. He's not talking about human beings. He's not talking about angels, those who have a relationship with one another and with God. He's talking about the physical and material world that God created. Notice he even pulls humanity apart at times and speaks about human beings and speaks about creation. He's talking about lions and ladybugs. He's talking about eucalyptus trees in the Amazon River. I think he's talking about gnats. And he's talking about Niagara Falls. He's talking about the sands of uh, Saudi Arabia. And he's talking about the grapes, God bless them, of Napa Valley, right? He's talking about creation, but not just nature. And this is very different. 
And, and sometimes I, I think that we use nature and creation, you know, as the same word or the same idea, but it's, but it's different. He's talking about all of creation. I wonder if what Paul is also talking about is not just what God has created, but also what we create as human beings. See, after all, before the fall, God instructed human beings to cultivate what he made, but also to create things ourselves. As his image bears, we reflect his likeness probably no more powerfully and no more exactly than when we make things. Whether we make the Willis Tower or waterproof, waterproof floor mats or productive learning environments or pumpkin spice lattes, right? Whether we paint murals or write code for games or for apps, whether we take care of children or make music, there is something sacred about creation and the creations of creation. See, our common vision of eternity, perhaps unwittingly, I think begins to dismiss all of this and even devalue the physical world, believing that we'll just fly away one day from all of this and leave it behind. In the ancient world, this was known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism views the material and physical world as evil, corrupting, and therefore it should be devalued and eventually completely dis discarded. You may have heard this kind of uh, sentiment and language of it's all going to burn, right? That God's just going to completely burn up this world and we're all going to fly away and be with him. See, to the Gnostic, the spiritual is better and truer even than the physical world. Gnosticism, though, is, is not dead. We shouldn't think that it's just something that happened back in the day. It's alive and well right now with many of the ways that we view forever, many of the ways that we view eternity in heaven. Case in point is when we think about heaven as merely spiritual. This is one of the reasons why it's really important to constantly go back to Scripture because John was actually addressing Gnosticism when he wrote his gospel account. It's very different in beginning John's gospel from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you notice, hear this, John chapter 1, verse 5. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John starts with creation. But John also begins in his gospel with the incarnation, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in his first chapter, John is essentially asking the Gnostic person, someone who believes that the spiritual is better than the physical and that the physical should be de devalued and dismissed. He's asking that person, if the physical world is so bad, and should be devalued, then why did God create the physical world? And then why did the Son take on physical form? The, the Gnostic cannot answer this, ultimately, and at least not well and in good faith. See, to devalue and consider the physical world as bad is to reject the God who created the physical world and then stepped into it. Are you with me? Look again at Romans 8, 19 through 23. Even Paul's personification, the way that he personifies creation, gives it dignity. Creation is waiting. Creation is hurting. Creation is hoping. Creation is groaning. Creation is waiting for something in particular, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Creation is eager for the truths and beauties of God's kingdom to be exposed because then, Paul is telling us, creation will be set freed from its bondage to what? Corruption. He's teaching us that when humanity 
is set freed from the fallenness of this world, this world will be set freed from fallenness as well. In eternity, human beings will be restored because of the mercy and love and power of God. And then all of creation will be restored. This is the inheritance that Paul is writing about, that the children of God are waiting for. And as scholar N.T. Wright comments on this particular passage, the inheritance is the whole renewed, restored creation. Our inheritance is not just a relationship with God, though that is preeminent about what we inherit in the age to come, in eternal life, but it's all of creation. In fact, it's even better than what we think. See, eternity is physical. Our inheritance is physical. Our future is physical, material, and bound within God's good creation, just like our bodies, which Paul says in this particular passage, he calls the first fruits. Creation will be redeemed, not discarded, right? This is what John saw with his heart. Through his imagination, when he began and got a vision of eternity, and he wrote it this way in Revelation 21, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. He saw a city. It's holy for sure, but it's also physical. It's spiritual, yet very literal. John is seeing something that is a part of the physical world. And in fact, a city being part of what those who were created by God have created within the license and agency that God has given them. Why is this so important? Why belabor this particular point? Why is it so vital that we envision the nature of eternity as physical? Well, first and foremost, because if that's what God's word teaches, we should really care about that. But also, one of the most basic reasons is that if the future is physical, then we ought to care for the physical world well now. Yes, our bodies, but also all of creation, this planet. Now, many at this point begin to object right? So I'm, I'm going to do my best to try to pastor us through that as well. The objection would be, well, isn't God going to make all things new anyway? Like if you'd read all of Revelation 21, you see that, behold, I'm making all things new, as also said. So why does it matter if we plant trees and not deplete natural resources and even care about the polar ice caps if God's going to make everything right? Well, let's be consistent. If, if we apply that principle to one thing, throughout God's word, we ought to apply it to all things. And in this pattern of thinking, we should wait to do anything that is right, because God will make all things right anyway. But we don't have that wider principle for morality, for our bodies, for one another. Then why would we apply it to God's world and God's creation? See, God's promise to make things right is not an excuse for laziness but a promise to complete whatever he begins in and through us in eternity. So that's the nature of eternity. The nature of eternity is physical. So we should take care of God's physical world and look forward to a physical life in the age to come. This leads us to the location of eternity. After all, did you notice the city that John saw in Revelation 21 was not going away from earth into heaven, so to speak. It's the opposite. This is really important. Heaven was coming to earth. The city was coming down, not going up. The people of God were not flying away to glory. The people of God, the bride, was actually coming to this planet. Things that make you say, hmm. Now back in Romans 8, 19 through 23, the language of creation then serves as a dual purpose. 
It not only teaches us that eternity is physical, but contrary to our fallen imaginations, eternity is also on earth. To help us understand this, let's talk about a few common words that the Bible uses about life after death, or what N.T. Wright calls the life after life after death. See, usually we talk about all of these words, heaven, kingdom, paradise, resurrection, the age to come. I think we think about all of these words and really all of eternity as one big jumble and we conflate all of their meanings and ideas to whatever is happening in the future, right? That will be with God in eternity and on all of these things sort of mean the same thing, but they don't. The way that the scriptures teach about heaven, about the kingdom, about paradise, about resurrection, and about the age to come are all very nuanced. And in all of that nuance, we get a full and right picture, our collective imagination of what the age to come, or what eternity is meant to look like by God's design. So let's look at each of these briefly, and I promise to not do justice to each of these ideas for the sake of time. But the first is heaven. Heaven should be understood not as a location per se, but as a realm or dimension. Often in the New Testament, heaven simply is another word for sky or or something in the atmosphere out there, especially in the Gospels. But heaven as it relates to eternal life, is God's dimension, the realm where God dwells. In fact, one writer explained that heaven is so much God's sphere that it can be regarded as a synonym for God himself. It's a realm which is over the physical realm, yet also through Jesus' kingdom has already begun to show up or interact with this earth. This, this is why, you know, as, as we'll explore, we see the intersection of heaven and earth through the scriptures, not as this distant reality that we'll go to one day, but of this, this realm, this reality that is already interacting with creation right here and now. So heaven is not our destination, but biblically speaking, heaven is the realm of God, which exists now, which is prevalent now, which is interacting with creation even now. Secondly, that's heaven. What about kingdom? The Bible also talks about the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. And in fact, when you look at the New Testament, we talk about the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. They're they're the same thing, but that word heaven and God are used interchangeably, just like we've just discussed. They're one and the same. The kingdom, though, is not God's realm per se, but the kingdom is the rule and reign of Jesus. And we understand that the advent or incarnation of the Son of God, in that moment, heaven came to earth in a very real, palatable, and direct way. So Paul says in Ephesians that God set forth in Christ a plan to unite all things in him. That's in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So in other words, when we look to Christ, we are seeing the coming together of heaven and earth. We're seeing the coming together of heaven and earth because Jesus is the king. Therefore, with him comes this kingdom. So in Christ, heaven and earth are united because he is God, that fully God, that's heaven. But he's also fully man, that's earth in one being. Are you tracking with me? And the only way this unity and harmony has continued, or rather the primary way that this has continued to persist in our world is through the idea of the kingdom. That when you and I live within the boundaries and ethics and love of the kingdom, we see heaven and earth come together. We see heaven and earth come together within the rule and reign of Jesus. This is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the longing of God's people is to see the kingdom of Jesus invade the kingdoms of this world. 
is to see the will and way and rule and reign of Jesus be more and more clear and present in my heart and in my neighborhood and in the school systems and in my job. We want to see the kingdom of Jesus take hold of this whole thing. Are you with me? That's the kingdom. But the kingdom even is not our future destination. The kingdom is the present rule and reign of Jesus, which has already begun to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And when Jesus returns, when the king returns, the fullness of the heaven, or rather, the fullness of the kingdom will come. Paradise. So we've considered heaven. We've looked at kingdom, neither of which are really like our future destination, but things that are actually persistent and invading earth right now. But Jesus also speaks about paradise. So on the cross, Jesus hung between two criminals. And one of these criminals, if you're familiar with the story, who hung beside Jesus, looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response is really instructive for us. He sees the man's faith and and his worship, and Jesus says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise was actually a word that was used in common parlance in the day for a beautiful garden That was not the final destination of a soul, but rather where the dead go to be looked after and refreshed until the time of resurrection. So Jesus uses a word on the cross and speaks about the immediacy. Today, he says to him, you will be with me, Jesus says, where? In paradise, not heaven, not the kingdom, even though the man asked to be in the kingdom, right? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he says, I I promise today you'll be with me, not in the kingdom, not in heaven, but where? Paradise. Paul clearly teaches something that's really helpful for us as well in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that absence from the body is presence with the Lord. So give me some grace trying to synthesize a ton of teaching around this through the scriptures. Paradise is not our, our eternal destination either. Paradise is a temporary spiritual resting place in which those who are in Christ are with the Lord immediately after they die. This is what we can tell from Jesus' teaching as well as, I think, the consistent teaching in the New Testament. So we've looked at a few things. Heaven, not our eternal destination, but actually the realm of God. The kingdom, not our eternal destination, but actually the rule and reign of Jesus that has already shown up and is beginning to invade our world. Paradise, which is not our eternal destination, but the place where disembodied souls are in the presence of the Lord immediately after they die. But then the scriptures also teach about a fourth thing, resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the preeminent passages about the resurrection. In it, the apostle says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has, also, has come also the resurrection of the dead. He calls Jesus, or specifically, Paul does, the, the resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits of the dead, meaning that Jesus represents the first of a new harvest or a new creation in which we will be raised from the dead. We too will be raised from the dead. So what Jesus has experienced, we too will experience. This is a principle taught throughout the scriptures. So there's an event, though. Paul is saying this hasn't happened yet. He's looking into the future. There's an event in the future which has already been initiated by the resurrection of Christ, which moves us from this present age to what Jesus will call, which we'll look at in a second, the age to come. When the dead in Christ will rise from the dead, be given new resurrection bodies, just like Jesus, bodies which are beyond death, bodies which are beyond decay, bodies which are beyond destruction, which are beyond 
splinters, which are beyond pain, which are beyond sickness, which are beyond COVID-19, can I get an amen, which are beyond sin, which are beyond belief. Resurrection seems, I think, a bit closer to our destination when we look at all of these different classifications or words or ideas throughout Scripture. Resurrection, church, is the moment and state of our new life in Christ on this earth, which has already, or which rather, will in that day be fully joined with heaven. So at the resurrection, we will have phys- a physical existence. We will come, not we will be in the presence of the Lord, but we will we will come to this new body, which is beyond decay and beyond death, just like Jesus. Lastly, we see the language of the age to come. So we see heaven, we see kingdom, we see paradise, we see resurrection, and we also see the age to come. Just before Jesus ascends to the heavenly Father at the end of Matthew. Um, Matthew's gospel account, he has all of his disciples together and he says this to them. He's reminding them about discipleship and about, you know, ultimately what their charter is, the Great Commission as it's called. And he says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice that promise. Jesus promises to be with his disciples, to be with the church until the end of the age. Now, we shouldn't read that as like the end of the age and then Jesus is like, I'm not with you anymore. He's not saying at that point, I will depart from you, but at that point, a new age will begin. The end of the age is not when Jesus will no longer be with his people, but rather he will return to earth and bring about what he has called the age to come. So Jesus encourages his disciples in Mark chapter 10, which we'll look at this week if you're following in our Mark uh, reading guide study. In Mark 10, that sacrifices in this age will result in in the rewards a hundredfold, Jesus says, and in the age to come, eternal life. So Jesus sees this present age, and when he returns, a new age will begin. Let's see if we can't put all of this into focus to, to help understand what's the location of eternity as best we can from what the scriptures teach so that our collective imagination, our Christian imagination, would be accurate, true, and beautiful. Well, in the age to come, let's put it this way, in the age to come, which is marked by the return of Christ, the dead in Christ will be raised to eternal life. We will no longer be in a disembodied paradise, but will dwell on a new earth, which has been fully joined by heaven because the kingdom of God has been fully realized through the presence of God. This is the best we understand, and I think a clear and beautiful picture of what eternity looks like, of the location of eternity. In other words, we can just say this, if, if we were trying to synthesize all of this, the location of eternity is not up there. The location of eternity is right here. Redeemed, restored, resurrected. I think that language and idea of the age to come may be the most helpful for us in our search to sort of crystallize what the Bible teaches about the future, what the Bible teaches about eternal life. There is this age and there is the age to come. It shapes our Christian imagination in a way that I think really cuts against the grain of our particular religious culture. It takes our eyes off of ourselves. In other words, instead of asking, what happens to me or where do I go when I die? We ask, when is Jesus coming back? And how is the age to come meant, or rather this age meant to prepare me for the age to come and prepare all of us for the age to come? And in other words, we'll, we'll look at the physical, material, and present life that we have, and we won't despise it. 
We won't desire to leave this earth. We will long for the Lord to join us here and to begin that redemption project right now. Perhaps that leads us to a better question. Not where will eternity be, but when. When will it be? So the location of eternity, or rather the nature of eternity, let's keep in mind, is not disembodied but physical. The location of eternity is not up there, it's right here. And I'd like to suggest to you that the timing of eternity is not in the future, but it's right now. The timing of eternity is not in the future, but it's right now. Eternity, in other words, has already begun. So for the Christian, we are not longing for something and just waiting around until like the real thing happens or the real life begins. We believe that in Christ, eternity has already begun. Let's look back at Romans chapter 8, 19 through 23. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hopes that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I hope you notice, having been having shaped our imaginations through what the Bible has said thus far about the nature nature and location of eternity. This passage, I hope, begins to make a little bit more sense. Why Paul has taken what might have at first seemed like an excursus or, or a rabbit trail, if you will, this passage makes a lot more sense when we've taken the time to understand holistically what the Bible says about eternity. We see a physical and material nature of the way that Paul is speaking about eternity. We see how our redeemed bodies await the future, even of the resurrection, even of resurrection when Jesus returns, and how this world is not going to burn up, but be redeemed and reborn. But notice something else. Something has already begun to happen in the follower of Jesus that even creation is looking at and longing for in that personification language. The people of God Something has happened in the people of God which creation still anticipates, which is still in the future for creation. In other words, something creation is waiting for, believers are no longer waiting for. Something that creation is longing for, believers are not longing for in the same kind of way. Notice verse 23. Look at it again. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, when we look at the the resurrection of Jesus— he, Paul says, is the first fruits of a new humanity. But when creation looks at us, they see the first fruits of a new creation, right? They see the Spirit of God beginning to do something. Let, let, me, let me play that back to make sure that we hear this. The first fruits that we see in the resurrection of Jesus, and I got to slow down because I'm kind of excited. When, when, we look at, when we look at Jesus, we see the first fruits of what our bodies will look like in eternity. But when creation looks at us, they see the first fruits of what the new creation will look like in the age to come. So there is something of eternity. Oh, this is such good news for us. There is something of eternity that has already taken place in the soul of a follower of Jesus that is the sign and seal of the Holy Spirit for which all of creation, they go, what we're longing for is already in you. What we're hoping for to be redeemed is already in you. We are waiting for our bodies to be redeemed one day. Yes, Lord, may it come quickly. But the first fruits of the Spirit have already begun to bear within us, to produce something of the new creation with us. This is why Paul says, and we celebrate, that the old is gone, the new has come. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new, what? 
creation. See, when Jesus came to earth, heaven showed up too. When Jesus lived, died, and was buried, his kingdom, rule, and reign began to take hold of this realm. And when human beings on earth bow the knee to King Jesus, confess their sinful allegiance to the kingdoms of this world, and bind themselves through the, to the resurrected Savior, resurrection happens within our souls. Heaven invades our hearts. The kingdom comes in us and then through us. Eternity dwells in us through the Spirit of God. Are you with me? Therefore, creation is longing with, as the preacher used to say, tiptoed anticipation to experience what has already happened in you and in me. Eternity has already begun. The timing of eternity is not in the future. It's right now. This is what we should imagine. This is what should come to mind when we think about the age to come. When we think about resurrection, when we think about heaven, when we think about eternal life, when we think about who God is, where he is, and what he's up to, our collective Christian imagination has cast a picture in our hearts which runs contrary to the picture of forever in the Bible. We should repent of this, but we should celebrate that we are wrong. We should celebrate that we are not waiting for forever to begin someday. It has already begun in Christ. We must imagine then, we must see with our hearts an age to come in which all the works and power and joys of Jesus' kingdom will not leave this world, but take hold of it. It's physical. It's right here. It's right now. Therefore, what you do, church, what I do with my body and with this physical world and how we navigate it together, cultivate it, nurture it, and even consider its value and its importance. How we treat this planet and our bodies and each other and the systems and structures and things that we make with our hands, all of that stuff matters. Because as one theologian says, this is not just some sort of project we put on a cart that's falling over a cliff. But ultimately, what we do in this life in some beautiful and mysterious and powerful and resurrection kind of way actually carries on into the age to come. So the nature of eternity is not disembodied, but it's physical. The location of eternity is not up there. It's right here. The timing of eternity is not in the future. It's right now. And how do we know all of this? When we look to Christ. When we look to Christ, he is the first fruits of this resurrected body we will have. And when creation even looks at us and sees the first fruits of the Spirit of God bringing about a new creation within us, so may we be a people with an imagination that is shaped by the Word of God, and may we be a people that rejoice that that imagination one day will be fully realized in a physical, material, true, and beautiful eternity with Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, help us. Help us that, to open your Word and believe it. Help us to take you at your Word. Forgive us for the ways that we believe we will find more comfort and peace, especially as it relates to eternity, from ideas in this world and not ideas from your word, not truth from your word. Because ultimately, your truth is the most beautiful thing. It's the most comforting thing. It's the most loving thing. It's the most encouraging thing. And so we thank you that there is even an eternity to speak of because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. 
Thank you that there is even a project of a new creation that is happening right now because Jesus rose from the dead. Thank you that the kingdom of God is invading the kingdoms of this world. Give us eyes to see it because Jesus has risen from the dead. Thank you that this world will be not discarded and burned up, but reborn and remade remade because Jesus rose from the dead. We love you. Help us to trust you, obey you, follow you, believe in you, and see the vision of the future that you have made for us with the eyes of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.